everyone. Welcome to the first episode of this brand new podcast series, eLearning Africa, in conversation with. I'm Rob Vember and look forward to bringing you insights, advice and new solutions from digital learning and ICT experts and leading practitioners on the challenges faced by African education and training professionals. This podcast is brought to you by eLearning Africa, the Pan-African Network for ICT for Education, Training and Skills Development, Africa's home for ideas, innovation and sustainable solutions for education, training and skills development since 2005. In this first episode, I'm in conversation with Michael Onyongo. Hey Rob, so I'm in Nairobi. So interesting for those of you who may not to not not to know too much about Nairobi. I'll just say that Nairobi is the only capital city in the whole world that has the highest number of migratory birds passing through at any time of the year. So that's where I'm coming from. We'll talk about everything from family to AI, bad data to climate change, the future of work to how we close the infrastructure gap. I'll also ask him to explain 5G, blockchain and cryptocurrency to my mother. Michael's a 2015 Rockefeller Foundation Global Fellow for Social Innovation, a Skoll Foundation Fellow in 2019, and previously served within the wider creative industries sector. A thought leader on the future of work in the fourth industrial revolution, Michael leads and works around emerging technologies and economic empowerment, serving in varying sectors within governments, NGOs, and the private sector in Africa and beyond. Currently, he's a national consultant designing and supporting the United Nations SDG Innovation Lab in Kenya and a member of the Distributed Ledgers and Artificial Intelligence Task Force in the National Ministry of ICT. In the crazy times that we find ourselves in, I should ask more specifically, which room of the house are you in? So I'm actually sitting in the sitting room right now. And interestingly enough, I can actually hear the birds outside, the very birds that I'm talking about. <laughs> so I'm actually sitting in the sitting room as I'm talking to you, right? So, or the living room, depending on which part of the world you're in, what you call it. Okay. Right. I'm currently in Cape Town, South Africa. So both of those two terms make the world of sense to me anyway. We've just marked, for South Africa in, in particular, we've just marked uh, about three days ago, one year since we've been in lockdown. And I'd seen a remark on Twitter where someone had said we're on, on day 366 of our 21-day lockdown cycle. Uh, <laughs> it has been just a, an indescribable year in many ways. And as much as I now use that word indescribable, I'm going to ask you to just broadly reflect on a personal level of yeah. what you've learned over the course of the last year. Well, I'll tell you, the most important thing that I've learned is that um, I'm alive, I have life, I am healthy, and I think, for me, it has actually boiled down to that. And everything else is like an extra and... Um, you know, a nice to have, not a must have. So I think that is what has really, when I look over the past year, for me, that is the one thing that I, I must say, um, I'm very much 
cognizant and alive to. And I guess the same for you, you know, um, we keep losing people every other day. Um, you know, just yesterday again, I've, I've lost one is, um, you know, a neighbor uh, who doesn't stay too far away from me, probably, probably something like about 800 meters away from me. Um, I've lost a family friend. Um, he was much younger than me. And if I go back a bit more, there's more people that I keep, I have lost. So the reality of, uh, so in the midst of what has happened over the last one year, what is it that is truly significant and important um, in our lives that has come to the forefront? It has been such a grounding year in so many ways and thank you for sharing and, and I'm so sorry about your loss and it unfortunately as you say is a is a loss that so many of us can identify with on on such a personal level and I was interested in in reading about you as far as obviously your professional life and your professional work yeah. is concerned there was very little that I could find about that personal bubble uh, you talk of these uh, friends and neighbors and yes. one line that constantly stood out for me in all of your professional work that's out there and you know the professional biographies and whatnot right. as being an ambassador for the forgotten bottom millions can you talk a bit about your upbringing where you were raised and how you were raised and and, and i'm making an assumption in that 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 is directly related to why this particular line of being an ambassador for the forgotten bottom millions um, is so ever present. I actually, I did. I grew up in Nairobi, which is you know, which is a city, and um, you know, I grew up amongst a family of four. You know, three boys and um, one girl. My sister passed away a couple of years ago. She had lupus, um, but notwithstanding. But I must say that uh, growing up. I grew up under a household where uh, my father actually worked or served people. So he started off um, working as a people's representative, um, being a member of parliament. And I think growing up from a very young age, I saw and I interacted with people coming into our homes and into our lives of whom came from extreme dis disadvantaged backgrounds. And um, throughout our whole lives, I remember, it is only until a couple of years ago that I remember, I, I could never recall any time as we grew up. And this is from about the time, uh, if I could recall from about the age of nine years old when my dad actually got into, um, into serving. We never ever sat on our table. I never had a meal as a family without somebody else on the table. So got to interact and got to meet with a lot of very diverse people and personalities um, and backgrounds. And I guess then in my whole professional work and life, I always say that the time that I think today that I've actually gave the most value and what I appreciate about what I did was I worked and I served, um, you know, also in government. And I worked then as a um, as a county government minister 
in what's in a place called Kisumu. And um, every single day, I remember from morning, my day would probably start at about five in the morning and probably go up till about 11.30 or, or midnight. And that was because I would not just be meeting with people, but also in terms of engaging with lots of people um, via WhatsApp and everything else. And the one thing that a lot of the people kept asking for was either we're trying to get back into school, we're trying to finish school, or I've finished school, I'm trying to get into university, I'm not able to pay, or I have a business and I don't, I'm not able to probably secure some finance for it. I need some training and all these you know, the challenges that they had. And this is how I coined the term forgotten bottom millions because a lot of these people are invisible. They're invisible, they're invisible to, to us. They're invisible to us in the sense that we are so busy within our own lives. And until I lived and I went back home to my ancestral, you know, place of where my parents came from and I served there, I finally got to engage and realize just how fortunate and privileged I had been in that I had had so many things in my life that I, I had taken for granted until then, which had probably put me in a position that I now saw that I needed to ensure that how could I ensure that these people who were so invisible to systems, to society, to the world, could finally have a face, but beyond a face, they could actually have access to great number of opportunities, which I was able to match make and link them with. Why do you think you gravitated towards them as opposed to with your privilege as you had just laid out just thought you know what this is too big for me man this this problem these problems as we've come to know them across the continent they're massive yes um they're daunting Uh, why do you believe you gravitated towards this as opposed to running the in the opposite direction because you know the thing when i i'll tell you when I look at my parents, who thankfully, and I'm extremely grateful, um, you know, are both alive until today. When I look at my dad and I look at my mother and I see the joy that they have from how they led their lives in terms of service to the people. And it is always interesting when, um, you know, people who they've not seen for like 20 years or so go to visit them, or I've been with them when people have come over. And people say that, you know, where I'm at today and my family, the things that we're doing is because remember when we came to you and we needed this and you helped us with it, that was the thing that changed our lives and that is what has put us to where we are. So when I see the richness of, you know, and the joy that's within the lives of my parents who I may add I mean you know they simply live in a rural area very simple lifestyle but the joy that they have and when I look at other people who possibly also served 
when my father did serve, uh, when he worked as a member of parliament and also served um, within government, the peace, the joy that they have is nothing compared to some of the so-called grandiose wealth and accumulative things that people thought or drove or graduated towards in terms of trying to enhance or benefit their lives. I'm intrigued by your, and so appreciative of your constant use of the word serve. You know, it speaks to true servant leadership and if I can just share my personal opinion in terms of what we are so sadly lacking across many African countries, and I speak of my own as well, where many of our leaders don't see themselves in that realm of servant leadership. And I think that that will is so often what, what lets our people down. Would you agree? Yes, I do agree. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Without a doubt, I do agree. And, you know, sadly, positions of leadership, and especially within um, public sector and within government, and sadly, which is possibly more than norm as opposed to exception across the continent, are seen as a place where you run into and you quickly accumulate as much as you can before your time is over so that when you leave you are secured quote unquote <laughs> you know in terms of you know your so-called set for life going forward but i think as you've seen um it's a total fallacy. And it's interesting you mentioned that. Last night, I don't know what I was doing, but I was actually watching a documentary of one of your neighboring countries, Zimbabwe. I was watching about Grace Mugabe, you know, um, from grass to grace. And I don't think if you had told her five years ago that she'd be where she is today with all the power and the so-called wealth that she had accumulated, she probably wouldn't have believed you. But it's now everything that she has, that she thought she'd accumulated has become a total burden um, as opposed to of any value or help to her and her immediate family, which then she thought she was actually doing. I'd asked you at the start about what you've learned on a personal level um, coming through the last year of COVID. When you think of the world, when you think of the continent, when you think of society and economically, where are we today versus where we were a year ago? And I'll bring it closer, speaking specifically of the continent. Are you more optimistic? Are you afraid of, perhaps afraid is not the correct word, of how we have regressed? Have we regressed? How would you characterize where we are today as a result of COVID specifically? Oh my, Rob, you know, I'm actually smiling when you ask me that question. I'm actually very excited. And uh, funnily enough, no, it's been very exciting times. In fact, it's interesting. So sadly, and I think we need to call this out without any apologies. I'm going to be apologetic about this. The rest of the world, this is not what the script was. And this is not how Africa's meant to have turned out. 
So um, they're very disappointed. Unfortunately, a lot of people are very disappointed because it was meant to have been, um, you know, loads of death and, you know, all kinds of unimaginable things were meant to be going on um, right now on, on the continent. And, you know, we're not meant to be holding it together. But um, ironically enough, you know, the highest numbers, the highest number of people hospitalized, the number of people, you know, who refuse to reason, for lack of a better word, uh, have come and are and reside in what is so-called, you know, the most developed nations of the world. You know, if you look at how, what we have done, you know, as a continent and as a people, you know, I think we, we need to be able to say that we do have our own systems that actually work for us. And one of the things that I must say is that for us as a continent and as a people, all these so-called challenges or what the people try to term or coin as problems, I call them challenges. Oh my goodness, I love them because these are just grand opportunities waiting to be turned around. So it's been, of course, without a doubt, it has been a challenge in the sense that because of movement of goods, because of movement of people and everything else and trade has been affected. But notwithstanding, I think some very great things have come out of it, has shown that, you know, we're actually as resilient and more resilient than we ever or people ever thought that we were. And it is up to us to really continue to build, to build better our own systems that we have in place within various sectors so that going forward, we continue knowing that we have what it takes to be able to live within challenging times because this pandemic is not just going to go away and this is going to be more of our lives going forward. So it's now for us to find out and to say, hey, as a people and as a place, what can and what must we now start doing to align ourselves to this reality? So that now in terms of our education, in terms of our food systems, um, in terms of our businesses, what do we need to do differently as a people so that we are not going to be caught off guard the way some of the rest of the world has been? Let's talk about that in terms of what we need to do differently and what we need to do well. Let's start talking about one of your areas of expertise being the future of work. A myriad of statistics when it comes to Africa's population, certainly um, the the youthful nature thereof, 60% of Africa's 1.25 billion people are under the age of 25. Yes. And and rapidly growing that segment. Give me your high level take on what we need to be doing right now. To, to put ourselves in a better position 10, 15, 20 years, et cetera, down the line? So it's no longer, in fact, you know, I should stop calling the future of work because it's upon us. It's no longer the future, it is here and it's now happening, so it's with us. So one of the things that we need to do is that we must realize, you know, you can't talk about working within 
the confines or doing trade within the current business ecosystems if we're not connected. When I say connected, I mean in terms of um, connectivity and in terms of internet connectivity. But when we talk about connectivity, you must realize that there are other things. It's not just about having a connection to the internet. The thing is that you must have reliable power. So there's some certain things that we need to start sorting out in that we need to critically look at. So one of the things we need to critically look at is um, power. We need to ensure that we're properly powered up and this is power not just in the urban areas, but all the way down into the rural areas. The other thing is, I did speak about connectivity, but in as much as you speak about connectivity, you must also speak about the quality of the connectivity. And when you speak about the quality of the connectivity, you must also speak about the cost of connectivity. So these are things that all need to be factored in. But then also, as you're speaking about all these things too, we must also speak about the skill set. You know, so what kind of skills are our population, especially the young 60% they've just spoken about, what kind of skills are we skilling our people with? Now, the great thing is that um, a lot of, um, when we talk about education, you know, and I can say this unapologetically across the world, right across the world, whether you're a graduate in China, whether you're a graduate in the US, whether you're a graduate in Argentina, whether you're a graduate in Singapore, one of the misfits is that the transition between graduating and work has never been that smooth. And there's a lot of misfits that are not happening. So we're in a very good position right now to unlearn and not to go through the traditional learning methods that have been in place. So let's face it and let's be factual about one of the things. The current education system was set up for the industrial age. And that's why things do not fit in. So I dare put it out that I dare say that we need to rethink what it is and how it is that we are reprogramming our education system. So what we need to do is that I would say that for lack of um, to try and explain this, we need to have what I, what I call stackable credentials. So we should have an education system whereby you pick up the skills that you need, not that you're simply doing a course because, um, you know, for example, um, um, University of Hawaii in Honolulu has a four-year degree program and um, for you to get your bachelor's in agriculture, bachelor's in whatever it is, you must do the four years. No, you should turn around and say, okay, so what is it that um, is needed in the marketplace right now? And so what are the skills that we need to be teaching our younger population so that when they get into the marketplace, they are able to function, but beyond functioning, they're actually able to create new businesses that put us in the driving seat of being owners of businesses and not just consumers of other agendas or other things that people have already done and have created. So, you know, just to give an example, um, if you look at uh, the great stories that come out of Hollywood, interestingly enough, a lot of the storylines are actually of the great 
uh, blockbusters are actually based on all um, African mythology. So there is, and I'm just giving that as one example, and I could go on and on. If it's interesting, if you look at companies like whether it is Microsoft, whether it's Google, um, you know, they're quickly opening up um, offices across the continent. You know, they've got loads of um, full scholarships that they're quickly giving out to people and to our young people here. Why is that so? Because they want to own the knowledge that we have and then set it back to us as a product labeled, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's labeled Google. And I can unapologetically say that um, loudly because anybody who knows who works either for any of these companies, the first thing you do is when you, you know, when you, when you go up to work with them, you sign a document that says that anything that you do becomes theirs. So I think it's an exciting time for us um, you know, as the largest growing market across the world, uh, you know, the fastest growing economies, um, you know, uh, the fastest growing populations, um, all these things mean there's money to be earned and there's money to be spent. So we need now um, to purposely, you know, as businesses, as governments, organize and purposely know what, where, and how we want to harness this for ourselves and for our people. And yes, we need to look inwardly and see and keep asking the question, what is in it for us? And how do we go about protecting that intellectual property? And, and who, who should be the driving force or forces behind those kinds of movements. You look at the um, uh, African Union's digital transformation agenda looking towards 2030 and the objective being that by that date, uh, we'll have a, a single digital market. And, and you look at the, the challenges that they themselves present we're still very much on the continent to work in silos. Of course, there's the hope that the Continental Free Trade Agreement uh, will open things up a lot, yet we work in those silos. You know, we do a lot better within our regions, uh, but as a continent as a whole, we we really struggle to, to negotiate as a block on multiple different levels. So when you talk about holding on to that intellectual property that is ours, um, you know, do we look to higher education institutions? Do we look to government? Do we look to corporate? I imagine it needs to be a blend of all these things, but who leads? It needs to be a multi-stakeholder approach. Who leads? Um, leadership has really got to come from, and I'll say, you know, <laughs> uh, institutions, governments, um, blocks, whatever you want to call them, at the end of the day, they must be a visionary. They must be somebody who carries a vision. So it's not really about the institution. It's about who's in the institution and who's a visionary um, in charge. Who's, you know, who's the daredevil? You know, who is the one who will, um, irrespective of what's going on, you know, um, stick their heads out and really be able to coalesce and to bring people together and and and, and to push them forward. So we've got to start looking for um, 
champions and they are there and you know we've got to be able to put these as far as possible have people who are nimble and who can move quickly and fast and like i always say unfortunately the challenge with a lot of the because i i do work in this space is you know a lot of the the, the AUs that you speak about, you know, a lot of the, the various NGOs, the multilateral organizations are so bureaucratic in how they operate and how they're set up. But some of them are actually set up bureaucratically and actually operate also in this way, almost by design, um, I must say this, so that we are not able to move as quickly and as fast as we must and we should. So, and I'll keep on saying this, private sector, is possibly the place where some of the movement can start, which therefore then forces government or governments to then come in. Very few governments, you know, around the world are able to really quickly move agilely and with speed. In fact, I think in all fairness, the only government that I truly admire in terms of agility and speed are the Estonians. I think there's a lot that can be learned from them, from what they do. Only 1.3 million people, but look at what and how they position themselves, you know, in terms of working from, you know, on an e-business side of things and everything else. So I think there's a lot to be learned from them, but, may, but maybe also they're able to move so quickly because they're also so nimble and also such a small number of people. I don't know, but not, but notwithstanding, what you said is that we cannot sit on the sidelines and wait. Patents, it's interesting we talk about patents. You know, it's, it's interesting. And, and I think we need to bring this out now. Right, right now, we do know that um, all the multinationals, um, the Pfizer's and you name them and everything else, have refused. They have totally refused to make their, to, to give up their rights for the patients for, um, for the COVID vaccine. I think that is a huge statement to everybody on this continent about just how valuable we are and where we sit on the radar for these multinationals and also these governments. I think that's a huge, huge statement that has been made to us. And therefore, if we continue going the line of working within their organized systems that they have, we're not gonna get too far. It's time for us to truly unshackle the younger generation and let them have a different mindset and support and encourage them to think in ways in which we may not have thought or we may think are uncomfortable because for us to make the leaps and bounds and to be able to turn the great and the multiple of challenges that we have on this continent into opportunities that will end up making financial sense and resources really well, it can't be business as usual. It's gotta be a totally different reset and a new narrative. We can't continue playing on the same level or playing field that, it had, that has always been there. And our challenges the way I read it, run along parallel tracks when it comes to the future of work, or as you say it, it, it's really now. 
when we think of teaching and what we are needing to teach, what we are needing to learn for the now, and yet you look at our infrastructure gaps that exist as it relates to what we need right now. You spoke of power, certainly, and, and in South Africa at the moment, we're having huge trouble with our lack of ability to generate. And so you look at the fact that I think the figures around 300 million people in Africa stay 50 kilometers or more away from any kind of fiber or, or broadband connectivity. So we lack that physical infrastructure to even start connecting all of these students, learners, people to the internet. Do we look, well, I know where we are currently looking, and this is a, it's a whole uh, another debate, which you may or may not want to have about, do we continue looking to the likes of China or the West when it comes to investing in our physical infrastructure to make sure that we have the actual hardware before we start dealing with the software? Do we have a choice? You know, it's interesting. So like, and I'll answer you this, we just said that like, you know, for example, in South Africa, we have huge problems in terms of power. Is there any part of South Africa that doesn't get sunshine during the day? Not a solitary square meter. Thank you. So I think we need to rethink and we can't be we can't continue having the same mindset that where it is and how it is that we need to solve some of our infrastructure problems. Of course, without a doubt, we may not have the capacity or the, it may be, or the, it may make more financial sense um, to get some certain, some certain core things from elsewhere you know, because of volumes of production and everything else. But I think that we, we must, and the time has come is for us to totally and absolutely rethink how it is that we want to leapfrog forward. We need to be sure that Africa is leading the whole agenda of 4IR, the fourth industrial revolution. And we can, we shall, and we're already doing it. Now, it is interesting. If you literally look around the world in the very same ways, in the very same companies that you mentioned, whether they're Ericsson's or whether they're um, the Teslas and everything else, it's interesting how there's a lot of, a lot of the top resources are actually led by Africans. So uh, the point being is that what is it that we need to do differently and how is it that we need to reorganize ourselves within some certain some certain ecosystems where we feel we need to have we need to input for example like i spoke about the power you've just spoken about that people don't have access to fiber to internet is it isn't there another way in which people may be able to connect as opposed to what we already know is there? Have we really thought about it? Are they there or are they not there? So I think we mustn't box ourselves into, this is how it's being done in this part of the world. 
and that sh should be how we should do it here. Not to say that we cannot be informed by what is being done, but that should not be what it is that dictates. In fact, let me put it this way, and I always say this, is that um, what the last year has evidently and clearly shown us is that the past will never ever again be a predictor of the future. And the present is also not a predictor of the future. It's a totally different ball game and playing field. And nobody, nobody in the world has monopoly over that. And the moment we wake up to that reality and we understand that, then we will therefore know that we're in such a good place. And this is the reset that has happened around the world. And we must therefore decide, ring fence and say that for us as a people, we think or we know that we must invest and develop this particular sectors because they are so critical to us leapfrogging, to us going way past anything that anybody in the other geographies have done in their past histories. And I'd like to talk about AI's role specifically in us yeah. leapfrogging. I think often people, and certainly at the risk of sounding ageist, uh, my mother immediately popped into my head as I thought of this, you know, thinking, <laughs> thinking, thinking of, of AI yeah. and artificial yes. intelligence, what is that? Not realizing yes. that already on a daily basis, you log yes. into a website and you, you can no longer yeah. find a number to call for help. Companies don't want to speak to you. They want you to deal with the yeah. boss. Yeah. In what ways, and I'm sure they're, they're myriad, but what first spring to mind and come to mind of how we can best take advantage of AI to help us leapfrog? Yeah. So one of the um, one of the challenges and one of my pet peeves in AI is that currently, because AI runs on a lot of the data that it's fed on, and sadly a lot of the data that's being fed into the AI systems are actually being fed um, from, um, you know, from a white male's perspective. So it's a lot of biases are being fed in. So we as a people need to start developing and we need to start collecting a whole lot of our data and need to start developing our own AI systems that will therefore work for us. And of course, like you said, there's, there's lots that can be done. There's lots that's already being done. There's lots of great things that are really happening through AI. Things like, for example, um, farming, being able to know um, a lot of Africa is still rain, rain, fed, rain fed when it comes to farming. So using AI to be able to predict properly, you know, rainfall patterns when the rain is coming, being able to then also use um, same AI tools and everything to, to, to properly prime up your markets and to being, being able to ensure that that um, you can move your goods on a timely basis. We're using AI so you can cut up middlemen so that again, there's visibility in terms of what's in the market, what you're getting and things like that. So like you said, yes, there's lots of great things, but I, I keep on saying this. So for example, we now need to start ensuring that 
on the basis of AI, what capacity are we building up as a people purposefully? You know, which governments are purposefully seeing and are driving the AI agenda and bringing in multi-stakeholders on board so that then we're developing systems that will be resilient but will work for us and will work to enhance and to able to make us be more productive but also help us be more resourceful in terms of using the myriad of resources that we have now one of the things that and i must say that we have as a people that a lot of the other geographies don't have is that we've got we've got manpower we've got human skills so we must never take that for granted so we need to find out that how do we ensure that the human resource that we have is able to come into play and works and moves in tandem with all the various things that we are developing so these are these these are these are things which are not which need a lot of proper sitting down and really addressing sadly we you know a lot of the times is that we're keeping ourselves so busy just dealing with um, our basic needs you know which is just shelter water food and all that but like i say we must purposely put aside resources put aside people who, who must now pattern think and chart our way forward as a continent so that like i said we're a great place where a reset has happened we cannot continue to work and to play based on an unbalanced playing field. We're in a great time right now with all these technologies that are happening, with all the resources that we have on board. And now that we also know that from the education side, like I said, the education system, system doesn't work. How do we quickly start having agile and nimble systems that ensure that we can quickly upskill our educators and our learners with the right skills so that even as we are here, we are able to work and you know work for the various you know either organizations or companies from around the globe, but working from the continent without necessarily having to be there. Certainly, I think accurate that you point out this wealth of data that we have and so often refer to and perhaps don't interrogate enough where that data comes from. And when we look at scaling within these various sectors, I often wonder, you know, is it just the lack of resource that prevents us from scaling as quickly as we need to scale, whether we, we talk about online e-learning and it being accessible to the masses or tailoring the content to the degree that it needs to be tailored. Or we look at examples out of, and we have all these great examples out of Rwanda, I believe using drone technology to drop off a blood transfusion, looking at various countries. I've seen you previously um, 
decry the constant crowing about Mpesa going, that's gone, it's past. <laughs> we, 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 we missed the boat and didn't manage to take advantage of it. But all of these, these kinds of technologies that exist on the continent that we've seen work well, yet somehow we haven't been able to scale as rapidly as I believe we need. So I'll go back to what you had said that we are so siloed. Do you remember? In fact, you had said it yourself. Correct. Yes. So we do have the silo. We have the silo problem. But then also, I think in, 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 in all honesty, you know, and Rob, you and I know this better than anybody else. You know, a, a lot of people from, if you're not on the continent, people think that, that you know, when you speak about Africa, it's, it's a one size fits all. Not really. You know, there's, you know, we've all got different peculiarities, different needs, markets and our peoples, their wants, their likes, you know, which, which all drive products, which all finally drive services and which drive a lot of things that, that end up generating revenue. So, but notwithstanding, there are some, some universal things like, for example, access to finance. That is something which I think across the continent, we're all trying to always improve and you know to make better so certainly i think there needs to be more collaborative efforts going across regulators 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 are so key um you know to you know to innovations and um, to new deployments happening in different geographies and it is only if you have a regulator who is switched on and who understands that their aim is not to stop you know new innovations from coming in but it's more to more to protect and regulators should understand that they're so free to use what i call sandboxes you know so they should they should understand the options that they have in place to allow our young people, to allow our businesses to quickly innovate and to quickly move forward so we can leapfrog without, but also ensuring that, of course, the livelihoods of those who may be adversely affected if things go wrong are, are also protected, you know, take place. So, like I said, there's lots of people who need to be on the table when things are happening. And I, I think that a lot of the regulators work across the continent work out of legacy because they took over from the former governments i mean they, they have a legacy problem and we've got to get out of that mindset we've got to get out of the mindset that look how and what is it that we can or we must do to ensure that the innovations that are coming out can quickly and uh, can quickly come into market so that um, a lot of people may benefit from them. So let me just give an example. So like within the, and I'll speak about Kenya as a geography. So all government agencies in Kenya, if you have an innovation, they're not able to procure services from you because procurement rules are that you can't single source. You must get at least three people to bid. But how do you, <laughs> how does an, an innovation, uh, how do you source three different bids for an innovative concept? 
So those are some, some of the fundamentally flawed things that policymakers need to understand and quickly change so that the very same way that you know the, the bigger companies have managed to quickly move and dominate the marketplaces across the globe, those same fast mover advantages can also be enjoyed by our local populace and our younger people. So I think that needs to drastically and quickly change. And regulation is so important. I think accurate of you to point out how we do seem to have across the board this legacy of old of what we have just carried forward, whether literally coming from colonizers and governments that came before independence or democracy across the various countries and states on the continent. A, again, I could speak to my local example of South Africa, where often it could be said too much government red tape tying things out. But then you look, you look across the Atlantic and you look at what recently happened in Texas and where famously the U.S. system deregulation, yes. looking at certain political parties, deregulate, deregulate, de- deregulate, and you ended up with these power utilities who were doing as they pleased and inevitably not able to provide and supply power because of of storms and changes in the climate. So I certainly want to ask you about your take on climate change and the consequences that lay ahead of us, the the consequences that we are already dealing with, and how we can better utilize and prepare ourselves with 4IR and and AI to to ensure that we secure what certainly by my account is is a dire threat to, to all of us in our existence. Climate change, you know, climate change is, climate change has always been there. It's just that it's become more pronounced and more visible within our eyes. And I'll tell you, uh, I want to give you a story. So uh, the north, the northern eastern part of Kenya is semi-arid and it's dry. And I remember a couple of years ago, way, way, way before I even got into what I'm doing now, I was up there and I was producing a documentary for the European Union. And we met a group of herders and nomadics. And so the, my contact person who were with on the trip from the EU was saying that, you know, and this is this is probably about, this is probably more like 20 years ago, I was saying that, you know, we'd actually set up different water holes. You know, we'd, we'd come in and we'd dug boreholes for the people to come and so they didn't have to travel far to go to get water for, you know, for their herds of, of goats and camels and everything else. And guess what the community did? The, the community came and actually destroyed the watering holes and blocked them. So anybody would be like, oh my goodness, what is wrong with them? But guess why they did that? The elders said that you could not have those watering holes where they were, because if you did, what you were doing, you were stopping people from, from them from migrating, and therefore the pasture in that area would not regenerate and grow. So they need to go away so that by the time they come back, the pasture in this place would have regenerated and would have grown up again. Now, we 
have actually been the people behind driving climate change. If we listen and study the older patterns that were in place and study what I call traditional knowledge, so why is it that these nomadic people who a lot of people will say that are unschooled knew that you could not have too many watching holes because then you'd be overgrazing in a certain area. But somebody from outside who thought they knew better simply came in and decided that they needed to have new watching holes here. So going back to Texas, the big question is, and you know, just using Texas as an example, and knowing the big political divide, as you have put it, and you know, knowing exactly, you know, going to the politics of Texas as a state, did they simply refuse to put in systems that were resilient because of their personal beliefs? And hence, what happened in Texas? Because Texas is only one state that were also had severe storms. So why is it that Texas got so badly hit and some of the other places that also had the very same storms didn't get badly hit? So it comes back to this. So I think we as a people need to be alive to the fact that climate change is a reality because of what we continue to do as people to the earth. And there's no one nowhere across the world that has not been affected. It is now, we, our rains have been late. We should now be having our rainy seasons right now in Kenya, but across the whole country, we've not had any rains. They've been totally delayed. So we need to understand that as a globe, we are all interconnected and what we do affects the other person. But coming back to just to your question about climate change, climate change is something which we need to, whether we like it or not, we need to talk about it. We need to put it onto the table, onto our agenda and those who are coming up after us, our children, our younger population, need to have the information with them, irrespective of which side of the divide that you're on, so that going forward, we're actually able to make more informed decisions because climate change affects the way we live, the way we eat, the way we work. And coming back from where I started from right at the beginning of our interview, I told you that for me, the most important thing that I've learned over the last one year is that life and health is the most important thing. The other things are just but extra. And anything that affects life and health, the way we live, the way we eat, and the way we work needs some serious, not just discussion, but putting onto the table, unpacking, understanding, 
and working within those realms. And I think to tie into your much earlier points about those stackable credentials, I think we're also at a point, possibly well beyond that point where we should have for some time already looking at whether it be your traditional degree programs or qualifications of blending this thinking and learning in the silos of you know the arts and the humanities mm. versus the science Absolutely. and yes. it's incumbent on all of us right now that whatever we're learning whether it is in the field of engineering or drama that things like climate change they must be embedded in all of these programs no i mean you're absolutely right because uh, <laughs> you know um <laughs> I, I laugh and I absolutely agree with you. Like I keep on saying, um, whether you're an engineer, whether you're in the arts, whatever field or whatever it is that you're learning, if there's no earth to practice it on, <laughs> then what are you learning it for? <laughs> well, e Elon Musk would argue that he's finding us a, 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 a new... Uh, ah, ah. A, a, an earth too, so to speak. An earth too, yeah. As we wrap up, I want to throw a couple of things quickly away and you can decide how, how deeply down the road you want to go. Ideally, kind of quick explanations. I'm, I'm working on the assumption that you know a lot more about these particular things than I do. So assume, and she's going to hate me for this, we'll go back to my mother. Uh, assume my uh, mother. Um, or yeah. perhaps as it relates to these, these couple of issues, sure. you know, assume me. A quick breakdown of what exactly is it and or what is the debate around it? So in the debate around it category, 5G, what is the debate? What is the problem? What is the contestation? So 5G, and if I'm trying to explain to your mother, it just means that, you know, if she she's able to possibly, without, too much of a thought, like through her phone, you know, just using her phone, which is standardly in her hand, when it comes to matters, for example, concerning her health, she can quickly possibly self-diagnose and depending on what or who she's connected with in terms of health services, and no matter where she is, even if she is far away in some rural vicinity from a medical center, she's able to accurately diagnose and find out what her health issues are without having to physically leave and drive or go to a physical physician and be on or within the clinic or the hospital center. And so how do we, and you've used the, the health example, how do we then yes. dispel the really daft conspiracies about what's been implanted into our brains and systems around the use of the likes of 5G and how you know the conspiracies are 
are bountiful um, of how 5G is responsible for COVID as, as one example. And I'll, I'll link that up to one of the other items I had listed in, in how we use AI or, or, or technology yeah. to assist us with this massive campaign, it seems most days of disinformation, not just misinformation, but disinformation. Mm. How do we use technology to our advantage to, to try and dissuade and dispel all of these myths? Well, you know, myths will always be there. And I always say that if people don't have enough information and if the providers of the technology or the providers of the systems are not able to explain and provide enough information in a way in which people can understand, then um, nature abhors a vacuum it'll just come and it'll be filled in. So what has happened is that also because of the, the technology wars between the, the US and China, actually between the West and, and the Chinese, of course, a lot of the conspiracy theories have also come up because they feel that one person has gotten into marketplace quicker than they have been able to get in. So uh, I think without a doubt, and honestly speaking, that has also been a major factor and some of the conspiracy theories that have come in. So if I can't, um, you know, if I'm playing on the field and you're gonna score the goal, uh, I'm gonna come from behind you and I'll grab your shirt and throw you down and 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 possibly say that um, you know, I didn't grab your shirt from behind, you you just fell down, you know, or whatever it is. So I, I think without a doubt, um, the trade wars with certainly and undoubtedly are contributing to a lot of the conspiracy theories because one party has moved far too quickly ahead of the other. The last three things are all connected. And I think, at least I believe they're connected based on my limited knowledge. I'm not even sure in which order to ask. So I'll just throw them out okay. of the basic explanation to my mother. What is blockchain? Blockchain to your mother. So, <laughs> okay. So blockchain is... Um, so she left, okay, this should be interesting. So your mother has left. She gave you a jar filled with seeds, okay, to keep for her. And what you did, so, and somebody else came when you had kept the jar for her with the seeds and took out the jar and put in some more seeds and put it back in. So when you came back, what the person didn't know is that you're able to see the fingerprints from your mother and the fingerprints from the other person to show that he had also touched that jar. So what it does is that, and the fingerprints um, cannot be erased. So blockchain is a system whereby any change that is made from a transaction which your mother did with you by another party will always be there and can always be traced. So whatever your mother gave to you is, is secured within a blockchain system and anybody else who, who comes and interferes with it will always be seen and will always be on record. And Did so, I explain that? And so, well, <laughs> I, I will play this back to her and we'll find out. <laughs> Following on from that quickly then, cryptocurrency. 
cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is it is money, but it is money that is not in. Okay, so your mother already possibly shops at what's that store called in South Africa? Um, okay, I'll say Shoprite. Sure. Yeah. Okay, and she has her. Um, she has a. She has her. Her, her shopping her shopping card isn't it which she puts on her um when her frequent shopper card correct exactly which has her points on it isn't it correct but but she never she she doesn't have her points like in the form of money you know in the form of physical money isn't it correct so cryptocurrency is just like it is just like the very same thing that she has on, on her shopping on her shop shopping card and it is it is digital in that she may not be able to see it physically, but it's just as good and as secure as her ShopRite's shopping card. Is it and it has value. It has value, yes, yes. Is it the future? Is fiat money a thing of the past? Well, it's interesting now with COVID happening and you know us not touching money, um, it's already happening. Yes, it's, it is. It's not the future. It is here with us, and it's already at play. So it's just a matter as to what extent, and and to how quickly it permeates into our various economies. Whether the regulators like it or not, they'll have to give way to it. So, th so this will be the final one in this series of explaining things to my mother. This one in particular, I need an ex explanation of the value for myself. So I was been intrigued by the, uh, the NFT, non-fungible token digital art that sold the first one in the world, I believe now for 69 million US dollars. Can you explain that? No, I can't. And I'm being honest. <laughs> there's no point. In, there's no point in lying. Um, no, no, you know, and, so, yes. And that's fine. I've just I've been I've been fascinated by by uh, and reading a lot of these kind of Twitter threads going, we all have access to Google images, right? We, we, yes. we all have digital versions of most things that have ever been created, certainly as far as art go, goes. Absolutely, and yes. Yet someone has been given an, an, uh, you know, an NFT uh, art and a certificate saying he's got the original. And again, I may yeah. be with my very limited knowledge um, uh, messing, messing uh, up with the whole thing, but it's, it, it's, it's just, it's fascinating, I think is the point. We yes. have so much to learn and so much to figure out as we That's true. move forward with technology and and really speaks to a changing perhaps our value systems of how we think about what we value and what is valuable um, mm. as so many things move into a digital sphere and a digital realm and I guess this notion of when it comes to physical goods, there's a lot in life that we should be valuing that's not, you know, tangible. Um, Absolutely. But when it comes to physical goods, just the notion that I can't hold a piece of art in my hand, yet it's right. worth, <laughs> yes, it's worth 69 million is... is I hear you. Yes. Yeah, it's a bit strange. But Michael, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and... And I think what uh, so many, you know, we've, we've traversed um, so many different issues and touched on so many different things, but yeah. in some ways, what you said really at the start is, 
is what has stuck with me as I as I sit here right now about the servant leadership. And I really truly believe personally, I mean, that's the kind of the value that I attach to to people who who lead in that manner. And and I think is what what we certainly need at this moment in time, as you've also so rightfully pointed out, it's so many of these things are not in the future, they're now. Uh, and yes. we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we are building for 10 years from now. We need to be building for right now. Well, Rob, thank you very much for having me um, on the podcast. It was really great speaking to you. I love Cape Town. Uh, really, really do, absolutely. Um, four seasons in one day. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. May, may we may we all be able to travel sooner rather than later. I'm telling you, absolutely. Thanks to Michael for his time and thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed our time together, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and share it widely. For more information on the courses, webinars and virtual events that eLearning Africa has available, please visit elearning-africa.com. Oh, 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 oh,